0: Support for The Culture Show comes from Bernadine Sung Megason with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Jared Bowen. This is The Culture Show. Today on our Week in Review, it's the ghost of Christmas future haunting Hollywood. Will the double feature that was the actors' and writers' strikes take a toll on the film industry in 2024? Then it's the stratospheric rise and fall of actor Jonathan Majors. A conviction on domestic assault charges has brought down the action film A-lister. With Marvel Studios severing ties, is the film industry signaling a zero-tolerance policy for criminal behavior? Plus, after a 29-year year run, Brian Gumbel's Real Sports airs its final episode. Is this a final score for hardcore sports journalism? And first-time author Kate Corain gives new meaning to cooking the books. The writer admits to creating fake profiles on Goodreads as a way to boost ratings for her forthcoming book. Finally, with Kwanzaa approaching, we'll look at the origins of a holiday that was conceptualized as a celebration of community and African and African-American culture. That's next on The Culture Show. Welcome to The Culture Show. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm Callie Crossley. And
1: I'm Edgar B. Hurlick,
0: the III. And it's time for our Arts and Culture Week in Review. Here's what it sounded like. This is almost the end, ladies and gentlemen, of everything and everyone. But the news came this fall. The 320th broadcast of Real Sports would be the last. After 29 seasons, the final episode premieres this week. In reality, Jeff Koons is the symbol of a new age of industrial arts. His works are made in a factory. I want to thank James Patterson for awarding me this special holiday bonus. We're very grateful, and I'm going to use this to help us in our efforts to purchase the bookstore space.
1: Come on, celebrate and enjoy Squanta, spreading unity
2: in our families and communities. Because the laxine makes us so strong.
1: So let us come together to celebrate this season of
0: Quanta. Well, as you just heard, we'll look at the future of the film industry. Could 2024 be a box office bust? And does the rise and fall of actor Jonathan Majors mean the entertainment industry no longer exempts A-listers from bad behavior? From there, it's the end of an era in sports journalism, with Bryant Gumbel airing his final episode of Real Sports. Then it's strange as fiction. First-time author Kate Corrine puts her imagination to work creating fake personas on Goodreads to boost her own ratings. And finally, we look at the origins of Kwanzaa ahead of the upcoming celebration. But first, let's talk about Jonathan Majors and an incredible rise and fall. This is an actor who was about to, and we'll talk about why this is very relevant too. Uh, he was about to lead one of the major film franchises, so this is a devastating economic impact to Hollywood. But more importantly, he was convicted on reckless assault and harassment charges in a New York courtroom this week. He'll be sentenced in March, but likely faces just under a year in jail, uh, and most of Hollywood at this point has cut ties with him
2: yeah and um he was acquitted on two counts um that that show he that was supposed to show that he acted with intent so they said one, and one of assault and one of harassment but it, the effect is the same um people's knowledge of the of the case had all come away with he's an assault and a harasser um and of his
0: ex girlfriend i have neglected to mention
2: yes uh, Grace jabari who's thirty um and they, he went to trial because he thought that he could prove that, no, this is not true. She actually assaulted me. That was their case. But the bottom line is it's effectively ruined his career um, and reputation as well. So I, I, I it's and it it comes at a time when Marvel, the platform by which he was getting his biggest acclaim is tanking <laughs> for various reasons. But I'll stop there and let. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: he (laughs) was he was sort of slated to be the centerpiece (laughs) of what they, you know, they call phase five of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that's kind of the layer that we're in now. Obviously, this is a sprawling franchise, 30 plus films, who knows how many television shows, billions of dollars uh, at stake. And he was, you know, playing Kang the Conqueror and was sort of slated to be, you know, the big baddie for this next phase and series of films. Uh, and, yeah, that looks like that is no longer the case. So, you know, questions now about what Marvel's going to do.
0: Well, before we talk about that, too, the, the question we've been wondering, we've seen play out over the last few years is when does somebody get banished from yeah. Hollywood, essentially? When do they officially cut ties? So there are sort of two juries here. You One, you wait to see what the criminal and or civil juries find in many of these cases— of people who have been brought up on assault charges or sexual abuse charges. And then you wait to see what the Hollywood jury has basically decided to do. Have they decided that the charges merit somebody being uh, cast out of a film or not having a film released? And it is tied to economics, and that's why this is hugely significant, because by ending their ties with Jonathan Majors, and frankly— Obviously, they didn't have a choice. How could you? Why would anybody want to look at somebody like this who you know this horrible history, uh, especially when you go into some of the details, as came out in this trial about what he did to this ex girlfriend? But they cut ties to what likely was a billion dollar franchise.
2: Right. And so, and again, back to the tanking. All right. So here are the reasons. And I love this. I, I'll take this quote from Matthew Borer from Cora. He said, let's face it. Um, the, uh, the Eternals movies were boring, beyond boring. I kept saying to myself, what is this about? Um, and then the second thing is they moved a lot of their franchise onto Disney+. Plus. So you no longer got the movies at the movies. You had to go to Disney+. Plus, and that disconnected people who were following the series and the movies as I was, because I don't do the comics. I didn't do all that. I followed the movies. That you know lost a lot of people there. So then... Uh, if you don't know what happened in the in those series that were not well um, responded to by consumers on Disney Plus, you're completely lost as a viewer.
0: I couldn't even keep track of when it was movie to movie, with it separated yeah. by a
1: couple years span. I mean, some of this you just gotta ask yourself: is just is, is this just the natural development? Things cannot last forever, and this thing has become so big. Like as we said, you know, they're in phase five now. They've run out of their A list, B list, and C list superheroes. You know, we're kind of left to, you know, really, like, sort of... I don't want to say bottom of the barrel, but certainly even in the comic world, less popular superheroes. But they could have planned.
2: Count. Of well, they, they didn't plan, <laughs> and they were so greedy, trying to get everybody to I have more know. subscriptions I, on I, Disney Plus. I would
1: actually <laughs> argue that I, I feel like the problem is over planning. I feel like I'm watching a marketing presentation with this thing at this point. It's just like the the universe is so interconnected, and the pieces have to fit together in just the right way. And you got to watch this show to set up this plot point in this movie. I feel like it's
2: kind of almost overplanned planned. To the point where it feels like homework. Well, I will agree with you by their moving it on to Disney+, Plus. but I'm saying if they had followed, if they had planned in just the movies, I think we Potentially. could be at a different place. Potentially. You know? Well, one yeah. of the things they didn't
0: plan for was the personnel <laughs> that would be able to manufacture all of this. I well, was reading right, some too. interesting stories too about most recent screenings and films being rushed out, and the CGI was out of focus, and they were they, they knew they had run out of time. They are taking a director from one project, putting them on another project before they had even finished that. So basically, they were just pumping way too much out there, and they didn't have the people to deal with it. And this is all at a time. This is collapsing. This is is what's holding a lot of these the that's studios right. up when, as we mentioned, the 2024 box office predictions are not very good. But that's all related to the actors and writers strike, because there is there is going to be a huge pause before new material can be run out. And that's going to be felt at the box office in 2024.
2: So back to Jonathan Majors. Now you're at a point where you have to uh, figure out how to replace this guy in the continuum. As, because he was going to be a big villain and build a story around it and please God don't hire the people that did the Eternals <laughs> you know um, and then go from there. I That's... mean the good <laughs> news
1: is we're in m- multiple multiverses in their universe now so the, the idea that they can swap an actor out or somebody else if they believe in the storyline it's certainly you know there's precedent both in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in you know kind of related franchises like DC of having actors switch out you know people say it's the character that matters not the actor and even when you sort of want to sort of say no 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 it is a different actor it's some multiverse version of the of the character or the creature that it was right so it's solvable it i think the 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 larger issue is the issue of whether or not um they're they're on the right path artistically whether or not they have the right storyline and it sounds like even before they cut ties with jonathan majors they were looking at where they were going and saying like ah, is this the right direction or should we be shifting gears? Mm-hmm. So I think they have options. It's just, I, I think their problems are much larger than
2: cutting ties with one because, actor. Because uh, yeah. our attention span is short.
0: And for that reason, <laughs> they're already looking at returning to the Avengers and should we, is it time to bring back Robert Downey Jr.? I think we know how that ended. I can say it because he died and people will forget that by the time that the it's yeah, okay. And, it yeah. and, you, and you I can't die have... in a multiverse. <laughs> yeah. you can, yeah. so that's just right.
1: one of the, that's just that's one of the potential point. outcomes. But this
0: is the frustrating part, especially as I think I mentioned on this show last week or the week before that new trends emerge in Hollywood, like the Barbie movie Mm -hmm. and understanding, oh, I think we were talking about Mm -hmm. um, older audiences, too, wanting to go to see films with older stars, as if that's a revelation. So why not go further down that road? Certainly they're going to go further down the Barbie road because it it ended up being such a box office phenomenon. But Hollywood seems to have this way of defaulting to the same, so much so that they will likely go back to the Avengers and resurrect something that they knew. (laughs) I do. I hope so. so. uh, Audiences and... <laughs> and, uh, Hollywood to fall to the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're going to follow the money, right? If people, if, if it draws people to the box office, and, and as we know, this is becoming a harder and harder thing to do is draw people to the box office, and also there's the fact that we are in a very global market for mm-hmm. every movie that That's comes right. out. So, you know, the idea of these big superhero movies, in part, I think, why they were working is, sure, there was a built-in audience for years who were really excited about this, who were lapping up every movie, so it was working in that regard. They were, you know, huge spectacles on huge screens, and so they were working in that regard. But they are also very simple storylines to follow with a lot of action. So, y- you or know, for people who never read the comics. For people who never read the comics, like or me. people who yeah. do not speak English as, as a first That's language right. or speak English at all, right? So you can follow the action if you're in Europe or you're in Latin America or you're in China. You know, you can watch these movies, and they're working for audiences across the board. So that seems mm-hmm. to no longer be... You know, you can't just say it's going to work anymore. So,
0: I, in some ways, I think it's a good thing. We'll see how Hollywood responds, and, and that, then we'll see that. Sorry, we'll see, see yeah. the trick, trickle down too when yeah. it goes to streaming. Because if it's yes. collapsing, collapsing yeah. on yeah. film, it's collapsing on streaming. That's we, we've all seen our prices rise, and there's a reason for that because the the model is kind of caving in on itself. All of the the billions of dollars that the studios put into
2: creating the streaming entities now they have to make it pay off, and it isn't yet. Not yet. And I would also note, I hope they don't change this part of the direction, which is that they were reinventing some of these heroes to look like many other communi- people Absolutely. from other communities. Absolutely. And younger folks, you know, like the teenage um, Muslim characters who were superheroes. So I, I'm interested in seeing some of that kept, but we'll see. Mm. Yeah,
0: we'll be following that mm. here on The Culture Show Absolutely. in 2024. Well, coming up, how Brian Gumbel moved the goalposts on sports journalism. That's next on The Culture Show. Stay with us. This is the culture show i'm jared bowen here with co-hosts Kelly crossley and edgar b herwick iii if you're just tuning in it's the arts and culture week in review and now it's the end of an era brian gumbel's real sports aired its final episode on hbo this week after a 29-year run so why don't we begin our conversation with how brian gumbel closed the final episode of real sports
2: when we started 29 years ago we never promised to solve any of the sports world's many problems only to explore them in an honest and intelligent fashion and try to address them in a manner that was honest, professional, and respectful of viewers like you. I think we did that, and if that alone is the legacy of our program, we're good with that. Whether you're a regular viewer or a casual one who caught us whenever, I want to thank you very much for being with us and appreciating our efforts. For the final time, for all the good folks here at Real Sports, all the very good folks with whom I've had the pleasure of working, I'm Brian Gumbel. Thank you so very much for being
0: with us, and goodbye. This is a huge goodbye, 29 years of a very particular type of journalism here.
1: Yeah, I mean, for folks who have not watched this show, it's essentially the 60 Minutes of sports journalism. And in that regard, it sort of looks and feels like 60 Minutes. This is long-form journalism being done with high production values. Uh, And these are stories like 60 Minutes. You might not be a news hound, but if you watch 60 Minutes, I guarantee it's going to make you think it's going to pull at your heartstrings it's going to you know educate you uh, it can and, change the and, cha- and, literally and, change the and, world and have an impact yeah. yeah and and this is the same thing you don't have to be a sports fan to tune into real sports and recognize that something special is happening on the screen and they've been consistently doing that for 29 years once a month incredible production values and a huge impact
2: let me just talk uh, and emphasize j- the journalism in the sports journalism, because I think people have become accustomed to thinking that what ju- sports journalism is, is who won and who lost. And Brian Gumbel was very clear is that 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 was the last thing they were interested in. That was not where they were coming from. They wanted to know the story behind the story. The other connection with 60 Minutes is nine times out of 10, you turn in and you're like, I didn't know this. Or, who are these people you hadn't heard of? Yep. A situation you didn't know, which in the sports world is kind of interesting because even if we're not paying attention to it, and y'all know how I feel about sports, you know, I vaguely know some of the bigger stories that are going on, and they would always come from a different angle um, and explain to you why it was important to pay attention to these things and report it with, by the way, correspondents who also were very well-respected. Uh, so this was uh, not boring preachy, but very uh, done very responsibly, responsibly and um, with an eye toward Educating.
0: let's hear a little bit more from Brian Gumble. This is from the CBS Sunday Morning interview he did with Jane Polly, Polly his former co-host, by the way. Mm-hmm. Real sports is isn't sports journalism in the usual way, but sports, sports seen through the sometimes season, critical lens of journalism.
2: We've done a lot of good, thankfully, um, you know. Um, like what? Netting at, at baseball games. I want them to do the right thing
1: and fix this game that I love. People have gotten maimed, hurt uh, by foul balls. Now you go to every baseball game, there's netting all over the place. The extent to which concussions are very
2: much a part of the debate about football is something that we pressed a long time
0: there myriad issues over 29 years. Also looking at abuses related to the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, IOC corruption. How big has that become? Mm, As you mentioned, concussions, Mm. something people still don't want to talk about. Uh, Child labor abuses. Children being used as jockeys on camels. This was the type of journalism that was happening, and as Brian Gumbel has talked about, and as we're aware, a lot of quote-unquote sports journalism today is considered what you watch on television, not necessarily being mindful of the fact that what you're watching is a partnership with the major football league or the baseball league. So it's not exactly going to be hard hitting when you have to please the, the, the boss being larger or sports organization at the end of the day. So we don't see as much opportunity for the deep dives and, and the,
2: the again, the world changing coverage that they were offering on this show. And we uh, should always say that uh, coverage of any sort of serious news is expensive. So if you're going to go back to those partnerships, Jared, then you have folks who are looking at the bottom line saying, do we really have to do the thing about the netting? You know, we can do something else and it'd be just as good. That's right. <laughs> good That's point. right.
1: And and this was sort of a last of its kind. There, <laughs> there had been, you know, even over the course of its 30 years, it spawned, um, you know, kind of copiers and competitors, which I think was a good thing. Right. But, you know, the sports reporters on, on ESPN is no longer around. Um, you know, other HBO shows like Back on the Record with Bob Costas, Bomani Jones had a show Game Theory. Those are both gone. Outside the Lines, which ESPN has mm-hmm. has been doing for years, has been cut back dramatically to essentially like a digital segment and sometimes appearing on other shows. So, you know, it has outlasted these things that it sort of birthed and is now gone as well. So it it's kind of... You know, it's it's a loss. I just want to point out, I, we, you know, when I heard that this was going away, I, I was like, let me watch an episode from this season at, at random, just to give you a sense of what this show was like. So they have, in this hour episode that I watched at random, I think it was the May episode of this year, they take a serious look at artificial turf and its role in injuries, especially at the high school level. Uh, they had a piece about an MMA fighter who was born without legs, overcoming all odds and changing his life. Uh, A look at extreme athletes and former gymnasts finding a niche as Hollywood stunt people. And then a piece about Mansour Bamani, who's a tennis player born in Iran with French citizenship. He's found, uh, you know, uh, huge fame on the senior circuit. And he's fighting for change in his home country of Iran. That's one episode. And that's typical of what you would get with this show, I think. It's just it was a crown jewel. They've all, they also won 37 sports Emmys and three Peabody Awards.
0: Mm-hmm. So and it seems that this was about money, by the way, for people wondering why it's ended. Brian Gumbel did say he, he wasn't necessarily willing to go on for years because yep. uh, he's entering his late 70s now. Uh, but it sounded also like he wasn't quite ready to see this.
2: Well, there's just been this merger or different. So he didn't know what was going to happen because right. 29 is an odd year to go out. You, you'd think he'd wait till 30. Exactly. So I think he was encouraged to that this is not going to work if I stay around. Let's
0: stay on the journalism front for a second as it relates to arts and culture. There was a story this week... kind of, not kind of, I find it very troubling. This is sometimes some of the uglier side of the art world Uh, but there is a journalist actually not a journalist, uh, she is an art history professor who sometimes writes for the Brooklyn Rail which is a publication, I'm being careful here because they're careful about how they describe themselves as not necessarily journalism but considering culture through a thoughtful meditative mindset kind of journalism, think pieces essentially but she had written a piece on Jeff Koons, uh, a very famed contemporary artist. He does the balloon dog, if you're not familiar with his work, which uh, gets a lot of attention. He does a lot of big installations like Bouquet of Tulips, which is a piece that he created and was unveiled in Paris a few years ago at the Petit Palais. Uh, he suggested it was meant as a symbol of healing and a remembrance, as the New York Times reported, of uh, victims of terror attacks that had uh, beset France the following, the prior year, a few years prior. Long story short, she was comparing his work to a mural that had been created by Fernand Leger and Charlotte Perrion. And talking about some of the, the she was looking at the the comparison with that piece and talking about how that was addressing violence. Long story short, I'm trying to simplify this. Mm Jeff Coons wanted to have authority over this piece that another person was writing and ultimately had it, and ultimately had the piece killed from Brooklyn Rail. Uh, this is very troubling when you have an independent mind who wants to look at the art world and you have the artists themselves wanting to have full control over how the messaging in there.
2: I just want to uh, quote her after the the whole piece about the the violence. she said i um um I really was uh, there uh, this is what she wrote. She said, it is a remarkable mix of benevolence and tension in Kuhn's gesture—this is talking about the bouquet—that makes his bouquet as an important artwork. So just so people know, it wasn't a hit job. No. Uh, she <laughs> said she was actually elevating Yeah, right. I think that's yeah. an important point here, yeah. too.
1: That the objection—she that she, she basically has said she was like, I, I, it was a compliment. Like, yeah. I was paying the piece a compliment— and they still objected to the way that she was paying the compliment. I mean, I think the they I, is important—the studio, Jeff Koons studio—and this is this yeah. is just like we were talking about with yeah. the sports thing. It yeah. is it is the intersection of arts or culture or sports, whatever it is, and big big money. And Jeff Koons, you know, to his credit. Um, th- th- that's a big money operation. It's more than just him. He's he is an artist who has you know reached a certain status where there are business interests
2: in mind there, and that is always a tricky thing. And and the boss of this said he was afraid he would get sued by. Jeff Koons. He was very frank about it. The, the but, boss but, of the Brooklyn,
0: Brooklyn Rail. Of yeah. the
2: Brooklyn Rail. So the, the bottom line is Jeff Koons had the ability to squash this. They they blamed it or linked it to a, a release that she signed. But the release was really about whether they would have approval over photographs or footage. She didn't have any of that. Um, so they used that really erroneously to say, well, that's a reason for us to say they have, can have uh, uh, put a veto on this, on this opinion piece. But this is pretty Pretty chilling, I would say. Well, it also
0: belies what almost every artist I have talked to over the years has said. When I ask them about their work going out into the world, uh, whether it's a a painting that's hanging on a museum wall or something like Bouquet of Tulips, which is this huge, huge monumental sculpture outside in Paris, and they say, after it's left my studio... Then it's up for people to interpret. And often artists will tell me that they actually learn from people yeah, who are looking right. at their work. Through. People see things and take away things and find an emotional resonance that they never found themselves in the studio. And yet that's why, again, I go back to the fact that here Jeff Koons is trying to control it from start to finish. And again, as somebody I love your said word, appropriately,
2: that's marketing. That's not, you know, um, that's not an opinion piece. That's marketing.
0: Yeah and I, I mean
1: it, it's it's especially troubling because this is uh, a professor of art history as you said who has expertise specifically in the subject matter that she was writing about in this case clearly like had something I mean this is how art and the art world works right or people put things to. into the world mm-hmm. people with expertise help interpret that mm-hmm. they put an opinion out there they say this you know this is this is it's troubling yeah. you're right I mean that's yeah. the only way to
0: put it and hopefully other organizations won't capitulate like Brooklyn Rail did and again it was nuanced they were afraid that they were going to be sued uh, but they were they're were in a difficult position but they didn't necessarily defend her either they did not which was also troubling <laughs> well coming up author James Patterson plays a not so-secret Santa that's next on the culture show <laughs> Welcome back to the Culture Show. If you're just tuning in, it's our Arts and Culture Week in Review. An archive of manuscripts and books belonging to J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are among a trove of objects being made available to the public this year. We just learned this week by way of Arts Council England. Edgar, I think you were the first to spot this. Yeah, I, I mean, I just really like this story, and it, it, you know,
1: so for starters, let's let's talk about the headline on this, which is that you know there there's a man in you know the UK who has a private collection, and in that Private collection. He has these kind of these like little jewels that relate to both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, you know, among the C.S. Lewis stuff, there's a bunch of stuff that he has. But one is a, a notebook relating to this place called Boxen, which was a fictional world that he created as a child before he did the Narnia stuff. Uh, and then there's a bunch of Tolkien stuff. There's letters between the two of them who were friends. Um, And this is part of a scheme, as they say in the U.K. I love the fact that speaking of cultural differences, like, in, you know, we say scheme and it sounds yeah. nefarious. But <laughs> in the U.K., they just mean a plan. Right. But they, they, they have these two sort of different plans. One is called cultural gifts scheme. The other is called acceptance in lieu where you can, you know, sort of like we get a tax break if somebody has a lot of money and they make a, a, you know, a cultural contribution, they sort of have a version of that there, or you can settle sort of estate taxes by making private collections available to the public. And that's what happened here.
0: Kelly, before we move on to you, Christopher Tolkien, by the way, the literary executor of his father's estate, spoke about what Edgar was just talking about, J.R.R.'s unique relationship with C.S. Lewis in a 1996 documentary. Let's take a listen here. The profound attachment and imaginative intimacy between him and Lewis was, I think, in some ways, the,
1: the real core of it. Certainly, it, it was of profound importance to my father, that, that relationship, indeed to both of them. So I think what I should concentrate
2: on was the extraordinary support of mind, of taste, that they offered each other. Which we can now read about so much more. Yes, that's right. So I just want to go back to uh, the scheme, as Edgar has (laughs) described it. This was something that started in 1910, and it was really about land. Uh, Rich people had land. They had tax problems. So if you would uh, allow for us to, you know, offer up some land here, we could get a big tax break is essentially how Americans would look at it. And then over the years, it's evolved into, it can be other objects, but to the arts pieces where it particularly has hit. Now, there's something similar in the U.S., and we've actually talked about that, as you know, because it has a connection to deaccession, because in the giving of uh, charitable contributions of art pieces, there's a a line in it that suggests how it should be used, and that's coming to question as we've discussed on The Culture Show. Uh, But in England, that's the reason why these pieces are now available, because those people had a tax problem, and they said, all right. We'll do this and you give us a tax break. And the bottom line is that we, the consumer of of art and culture, get a chance to enjoy it. And it's nothing better than that.
0: And there are <laughs> treasures. Aside from Lewis and Tolkien, there are two Barbara Hepworth sculptures, a Damien Hirst work. So you're talking about contemporary art, too, and Lucian Freud's sketches and drawings. Those are also some of the tre- treasures that now go into public ownership and become accessible. Yeah, there's
1: also two uh, two volumes of uh, Robbie Burns poetry, <laughs> uh, one one that has a, a, an inscription uh, that was written from Robert Burns to uh, the, the 12th Lady of Fintry uh, and I love it because he opens it by saying, it is probable, madam, that this page may be read when the hand that now writes it is moldering in the dust. Mm. Which is kind of cool and mm. kind of true and kind of creepy, I guess, I now that say. I say it out loud. A <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it should be said, when we say these go into the public, you know, domain, so to speak, they are going to cultural institutions, museums, and they're often paired up with ones that make sense. Like in the case of the Robert Burns stuff, they're going to Dumfries' house, you know, in Scotland. So, like, they, you know, it's, I think it's cool. It's cool that this happens. It's wonderful, and it's
0: it's great that it's celebrated. I love that it happens at the end of the year, saying, basically, this is excitement. This is what's coming into public hands yeah. uh, this next year. 52 million pounds worth of items in total this year, they Isn't say. Isn't that
2: something? I mean, there's nothing like seeing it up close and personal.
0: So, something fabulous coming into certain people's hands, <laughs> individual <laughs> booksellers or employees <laughs> of independent bookstores... Got these wonderful $500 bonuses from James Patterson this week. He, and he's been doing this for years and has just escalated it, going,
2: uh, I think he gave out $250,000 last year, $300,000 this year. I know. It's just wonderful. 600 independent bookstore from around the country, and there are uh, many here in Massachusetts. I'll just note some of my favorites, Brookline, Brooksmith, the uh, Harvard Bookstore, the Porter Square Books and Porter Square Wellesley Books. Um, There are more and more and more. There's a huge list. I like to use it as a place for me to identify bookstores and places that yeah. I might be going. Oh, that's a good idea! It's my little travel guide. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, oh, there's a bookstore here because honestly, I never met a bookstore I didn't want to go into. So this is wonderful to keep supporting these independent bookstores. Yeah,
1: I mean it's great, and we, mm. we you know, we've talked here on the Culture Show about you know the the rise in independent booksellers here in Massachusetts, and you know, a word I think that gets used. A lot, which, you know, and sometimes we we don't think that much about it when we say it, but the word is community. Mm -hmm. And so I think the world of, of independent booksellers and people who like to go to independent bookstores, that is a community. And I love the fact that somebody like James Patterson, who's a very successful person, who is, you know, a part of and relying on that community is recognizing it and giving back. I think that's part of the ecosystem. You know, he said on X or Twitter or whatever it's called, uh, Mm -hmm. I've said this before, but I can't say it enough. Booksellers save lives. What they do is crucial, especially right now. And he's putting his money where his mouth is.
2: I love it. And he has plenty of it to, you know, put out there. So that's true. So I love it. Um, And again, it gives visibility to all these places. I think that's invaluable. That's way more valuable than the $500 even.
0: And if you want to have a hand in this, you can nominate your own favorite bookseller or, again, employee mm-hmm. at an independent bookstore. All you need to do is submit a 250-word essay he reviews or his team reviews, and they do this. I also, I love that he assigns his name to this and yeah. that it's not anonymous because I think it, it it creates a conversation. People know that he loves books this much, and hopefully others follow in his footsteps. There's such value in doing this. What there's not value in doing is what Kate Corain <laughs> did. Ooh, wow. Unbelievable. This first-time novelist use Goodreads. If people don't know what Goodreads is, I use it because it's a great way to chart all of the books that you read. Um, but it's an online forum, basically, to, again, chart books you read, rate uh, the books that you've read, offer reviews. But she created... These, by the way, this is a story that uh, broke uh, two weeks ago, but just really surfaced surfaced and started causing consternation this week. Uh, But anyway, she created identities so that she could promote her own book, but then created identities to take down other authors.
2: And not just other authors, other authors of color. Yeah. Which is part of uh, a, a pattern that we're seeing across the country with some deliberate targeting of book censorship and other nasty kinds of things happening to authors of color. So this is just another one. Um, And again, to, to, to emphasize that she was a debut author too. So she was trying to take down other debut authors of color and she gave them a one-star review. Here's the thing about Goodreads. That's why I don't use it that much. They don't verify the people that put out the, the, the critiques of the books. So you don't know who you're dealing with or, you know, to, to a large degree, what their motivations are. And this woman was allowed to get away with it. We should come full circle and say, she said she's apologized, she knows it's awful, and she checked into a rehab center because it's some mental health thing she's saying.
1: yeah i mean this is this is bad across the board like Mm. everything about this story is 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 not good as you said it's the it's the dark side of the internet to a certain extent which we are still grappling with all the time that world of like you want to you know have a community as i just said or open things up or give people voice but you know, people use it for nefarious purposes. I mean, I think the, you know, I, I kind of get on the one hand, you could look at if she was making it to boost her own sales, that's kind of, you know, it's not great, but it's low candy. But the, the taking down of other people as part of it, doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, as you said, she has said she's going into a psychiatric care and rehab facility. I mean, just ugly across the board. And this isn't the first Mm. time that this happened.
0: We saw Elizabeth Mm. Gilbert recently had her upcoming novel that's set in Russia. That was tanked. That's been pushed off. That's the Eat,
2: Pray, Love author, if people are wondering who she is. Go ahead. And and another Mm. author of
0: Mm. Everything is Fine had, uh, she was just flooded with one-star reviews for daring to tell an interracial love story in her novel. And people have complained to... Goodreads, which I believe is owned by Amazon, That's correct, yeah. that this is a very, as you were saying, Callie, is a very flawed system, and there needs to be more vetting, and they haven't done anything about it yet.
2: And it doesn't look like they're going to, which, you know, I don't think this is a good look for them all the way around, because, you know, ha- ha- authors themselves will tell people not to go over, not to review on that site, because it's not helpful to anybody.
0: Mm. All right. So this is our vow on our weekend Review. We're going to have everything move up from here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was that was the dark point <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> bring
1: in the light we just had the solstice yeah, so now yes, the light exactly, now the right. light increases that was our own solstice right there uh
0: let's start talking about kwanzaa we get to talk about this and
2: i love that this is a modern created celebration to bring us together i know a lot of people don't know that it was created that people think that it was you know something that came from africa um uh Malenga Kawanga, I can never get his name right, um, Karanga, uh, he's 82 years old now, activist and professor of Africana studies out in California, came up with it in 1966 for the sole purpose of having a holiday ceremony that would uplift the cultural aspects of life for African Americans and center court of pan-Africanism. So there are rituals that go with it. There are uh, seven days of principles when essence, we, everybody talks about the one principle per day um, and families make homemade gifts that cannot be purchased That's part of the whole, it's communal. There's, yeah, yeah. It's part of the whole and thing. And kind of,
1: and it, it's sort of anti-commercial to it, a certain that's extent, That's exactly right. right,
0: yes. Well, let's hear from him. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is the activist, author, professor, and creator of Kwanzaa, Dr. Karenga, at the 2008 Kwanzaa Celebration, presented by the Philadelphia Chapter of the Na- National Association of kwaita Organizations.
2: Kwanzaa marks a profound reorientation of how we understand and assert ourselves in the world. In fact, one of the main reasons I created Kwanzaa was to reaffirm our rootedness in African culture. As I've always said, we had been lifted out of our own culture and history and made a footnote in forgotten casualty in Europe's history and culture. And as Amical Brown said, our liberation struggle was to return to our history and our culture to speak our own special culture truth we say and us and to make our own unique contribution to the forward flow of human history. Mostly it's fun. <laughs> that felt a little heavy. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds really fun. <laughs> so I just want to say that it's really fun to have those everyday conversations with your family and friends To so light the candle, talk about the specific principle of the day. And at the end, because it's seven days, to have a huge communal feast and uh, just enjoy it. So I want to I want to make that clear. <laughs> There's a
1: I, I can recommend it. There's a really good piece I read in the New York Times Magazine this month from uh, Is Ismail Mohammed, who's a story editor for them, who's telling his own story about being a kid and and they they started celebrating Kwanzaa and he wasn't into it when he was a kid because everybody was getting presents, etc. But the, the headline is great, which is Yes, Kwanzaa is made up. That's why it's great. And it goes on to say There's something uniquely American, both its wanton borrowing from existing tradition and its naked admission of artificiality. And he talks about about mm-hmm. as an adult really coming to understand Kwanzaa as something very cool and very American and very important. So great piece. Could not recommend it higher.
2: Oh, I, lo- I just I just enjoy it. And a lot of people, a lot of African-Americans do both, as you all know. I yeah. do, And I often I used to have a big Kwanzaa party. I may go back to that. You know, and I, I'll be I, looking
1: forward to my invite. Yeah, <laughs> and
0: I can do that. I'm going to go dark for just a moment before okay. we turn it around. We do want to acknowledge that he was also uh, convicted of assaulting uh, people. Uh, we, we won't go into the circumstances, but we do want to acknowledge that um, while on the one hand he created this, this also happened. And so we do acknowledge that. But fortunately... The larger part of what he was trying to do thrives still in bringing culture and food and poetry and dance, and, and that we desperately need it in this moment.
2: One last thing: uh, this, this is Swahili. Kwanza is a East African um, language uh, of Swahili that means first fruits of harvest.
0: little reminder that this is our time to share New Year's resolutions although ours are a little bit nuanced I think (laughs) we'll start with the Edgar I think you have a straight-up New Year's arts and culture resolution for yourself do I (laughs) (laughs) No, my my
1: my arts and culture uh, New Year's resolution actually is pretty simple Um, I'm gonna try to take a page out of James Patterson's book and do a better job in 2024 of putting my money where my mouth is Uh, you know we talk a lot you know Mm -hmm. I feel Like we talk a lot about the fact that a lot of things have not gotten back to pre-pandemic level, whether that be going to movie theaters, going Mm -hmm. to shows, etc. I think as I really take stock, I'm probably still not also up to pre-pandemic level all the time. So I'm going to try to do a better job of getting out there and seeing and watching and attending the things that I want to support. So that's my resolution.
2: Oh, that's great. It helps,
0: especially performing arts. They need it. Theaters are not back. Yeah,
2: they're not. Uh, I have a resolution. I don't do resolutions, so I have a resolution for Netflix. (laughs) Okay, as you know, they've been doing all kinds of changes with the subscription and all of that. But the whole point of Netflix was to drop all of the episodes of a show at once. That was the point Netflix go back to that I cannot stand this release one a week two a week two now four (laughs) later go back to what God intended for streaming all at once did God have a plan for streaming yes he did how do do you feel about the split
1: final season thing where they're like oh we're going to split the final season into drop five now drop four later drop
2: it
0: Everything that is the point (laughs) Netflix so you're you're telling us you don't have willpower because what I do is I, I don't like it it, yeah. But I wait until it's all piled it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because
2: I'm mad because they won't drop all of it at once. But and, you know, you I can work on my end if I decide I want to see one at a time. I can do that. But it's your responsibility, Netflix, <laughs> to drop them all. So I have to look if I'm ready to see all of them. That's where. I right, I well,
0: my New <laughs> yeah. What's well, res- yours, <laughs> It's a it's a hybrid. It's it's both what I want to do ish because I really also don't make resolutions, but also a, a, a resolution I'm assigning to other people. <laughs> <laughs> and this is about accessibility. I feel very strongly about this. I've talked about this a lot over the years, especially over the last couple of years. And and that's really about free, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for museums to be free. It can be done. We see European museums are free. That's different because it comes from state government funding Uh, But we see various museums, like I believe the Cleveland Art Museum is free, the Nelson Atkins Museum in uh, Kansas City is free. Los Angeles is having this experiment right now, uh, where a bunch of museums in Orange County are free. This year, the Harvard Art Museums became free there is a way for this to happen and I would love to see this happen in our region to get more people in the door. I understand it's complicated so it's not just about the art museums to find a way. This is about our community to find mm-hmm. a way. For foundations, for philanthropists, as Edgar, as you just said, put, put, put your money put where your, your, money mouth, where your is, mouth is <laughs> yeah. because it changes the game if, if everybody feels comfortable being able to go in the door whenever they want. Maybe they want to go in and look at one painting or one sculpture and walk back out again. That's right. They don't feel like they've wasted money doing that and it changes everything and one other signal that it can be done here company one theater just announced two weeks ago that their entire next theatrical season will be pay what you can
2: i i couldn't agree with you I couldn't agree more i've been in some uh, museums in new york where it's such a mix of people in there and you know because it's easily accessible so i mean it does change uh the game completely about who gets to go and And appreciate.
1: And also, like you said, you know, I used to work uh, at at a museum in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I worked there for a number of years. And the experience of being able to go into a place every day and re encounter Mm -hmm. a piece or a Mm -hmm. series of pieces Mm -hmm. that you develop a relationship with and see it over and over and over again is is it is special and yes. it is the kind of thing that if you have free access and there's a museum in your neighborhood you can experience it in that way which is something completely different than just going once
0: let's do it i think we can and because it's the holidays we don't have our lightning <laughs> to signal the lightning round today. the so much less scary <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little disappointed to not see you both jump in your seats when the, light, <laughs> when the lightning comes but so the lightning round are that's these are the headlines that caught our attention this week kelly
2: what caught yours uh, that on Christmas Day, the Color Purple new version uh, is opening. And this is a new adaptation of the 1982 novel about the story of Celie. This was by um, Alice Walker. Um, always a little controversial at the, at the beginning and still now because it's a story of, about trauma, Uh, At the first part of it, but I have to say the back part of it is about redemption and forgiveness. It was turned into the original film from the from the novel was directed by Steven Spielberg, featured Oprah in the role of Sophie. Uh, Then they did a musical. and I thought, how can this be a musical? The musical is incredible. They've uh, merged together all of that goodness into this film, as I understand it. And um, this time Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey are executive producers of the film, and it's expected to be a blockbuster.
1: And the whole film comes out at once, so you can watch it That is correct. (laughs) Thank you, Edgar. (laughs) Take note, Netflix. How about you, Edgar? Uh, Well, the headline that caught my eyes uh, this week was in the New York Times. That was a good joke. I appreciate a good joke. That was a great one. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Jared. Uh, No, this headline uh, was, is, or is, just how rich were the McAllisters in Home Alone? <laughs> I love this. And I love this because it they, the, the journalists behind this take this very seriously. They really do an analysis. They talk to folks at the Federal Reserve Bank in Chicago. They're wow. looking at real estate <laughs> records, and they're really kind of coming up with this notion that, yes, they are the 1%, but they break this down in lots of different ways. They look at the, you know, the home and how much it would cost to live in the home. They also go all the way down and say, well, don't forget, though, yes, they all went to France, but it was his brother that Paid for those flights. <laughs> but yes, his other brother steals the crystal on the plane, which means he's probably rich because rich people steal more than poor people. Steal. I mean, it's like. But they were sitting in first class. And, yeah, exactly. So they, they take it very seriously, but they also touch on some really interesting stuff. And I love a piece like this when somebody takes something, you know, kind of ridiculous, but really treats it with seriousness. It's one of my favorite kinds of pieces. So definitely check that out. I, I really <laughs>
0: like it. And that was a really nice house they had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah it was a really was. nice house. Yeah. So the one that caught mine is a, a, a holiday gift made by. By Dick Wolf, actually, of Law mm. and Order fame. He is gifting 200 artworks to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, oh. including. And he's not somebody who necessarily collected contemporary art, but he has collected Renaissance and Baroque art, so Botticelli, Artemisia, uh, Van Gogh, and he's gifting these wow. to the Met Museum. I always for some reason I find it really fascinating to learn people I wouldn't expect to necessarily be big art collectors. We just learned from Barbara Streisand's biography that she was saving up. She went out on tour so she could save up and buy a Modigliani. Elton John is a big modern photography collector. Steve Martin has written a lot about his collection. Uh, Oprah sold uh, Klimt a few years ago, made $62 million in selling that. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio can often be spotted trolling around the art fairs. So... um, so I tried to I, look, I was because I was very curious about other people I was looking at people who aren't just buying it for the investment value but they're actually people who want to live with art so that's the one that caught my eye this week and he's doing such a great thing with it putting it into the public realm there it's it, is wonderful. Yeah. it really is mm. well that is it for the culture show we are taking a holiday hiatus we're back on January 2nd with director Igor Goliak on his latest production and it's an Anglophiles paradise on that show we'll get a preview of Masterpiece's new season plus the latest series hitting Acorn and Britbox while we're on holiday catch up on all things art and culture by way of our podcasts which you can find on apple spotify wherever you get your podcasts callie before we go want to tell folks what we're listening to right now i think it's a song that you wanted us to go out on i don't think i hear it but we're about to yes Uh, this is a dimitri
2: side and and a bunch of other artists and it's called jingle jangle i just love it (laughs)
1: <laughs> can hear it emanating from Callie's office throughout the holiday season.
0: Yes, especially if you arrive in the office really early, which many of us do, and Callie does. You hear it blasting. Yeah. She doesn't think anybody else is there.
2: <laughs>
0: What's coming up on under under the radar?
2: Um, you'll get one more chance to hear Mike Wilkins' fabulous, uh, quirky songs uh, on repeat, and then after that, we're into the new year with new stuff. And Edgar,
0: what do you have coming up on the Curiosity? Desk. If you
1: check out uh, the uh, in. Instagram feeds for GBH News or The Culture Show. Uh, Let me ask you two this. If I say this, uh, you know, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen,
0: Comet, Cupid. Donner and Blitzen. That wasn't their original name. (laughs) We get into it. (laughs) And that's all we're about to learn. You can also check out our YouTube page for a a sit-down I just did with the artist Salman Tor, who has a fabulous exhibition at the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University right now. Uh, he is a Pakistani artist who came to the U.S. and has felt the freedom to discuss being gay and being out and to pick those stories on uh, the canvas, as you'll see as we walk through that. This so reminds me, this listening yeah. to this music, of being early at work. Uh, sorry, Kelly, that's my association now. <laughs> well, the Culture Show crew is Brian Bell, Max Chow, Gillette, Kate Dellis, Molly McCall, and Chelsea Merz. I'm Jared Bowen. Have a great holiday, everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We can't wait to see you all on January 2nd.
2: Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells.